My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. I am so psyched to welcome Kate Friedman to the Wonder Dome today. I've known Kate for something like 20 years, and they are without a doubt one of the most creative, enthusiastic, inspiring, and original people I've ever met. Kate is a master teacher, a teacher's teacher. They've been teaching inclusion for over 15 years, with two masters in education in both general and special education. They're a professor at NYU, helping prepare other teachers to serve students of all ability levels. They also consult with educational organizations to create cultures of inclusion for both in-person and online learning environments. And they are a multimodal, multi-talented artist who brings people together to have experiences that are fun, inspiring, and transformative. We dig deep into the state of education in COVID times and the ways that we all, whether we are teachers or adults or parents, can be agents of change in a world where so many of us are treated as throwaway people. So I hope that you really slow down and listen to what Kate has to say, because they know what's what when it comes to building cultures where every person thrives. So let's get settled in. And hear what Kate has for us. Kate Friedman, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah. We were just, just before I pressed record, you and I were connecting to the fact that we've known each other for almost two decades. I don't know, we'd have to do the math on the exact moment, but, but one memory I have in particular is driving uh, down to Tennessee to the Bonnaroo Music Festival. Yeah. And and I was with our good friends, Tobin and Todd, and you were there with Brian and, and like just kind of finding you and Brian in the midst of this tent city with tens of thousands of people and who you were then and who you are now. Like there's just this, this through line, even as I've watched you evolve to become this incredible educator and facilitator and trainer and just force for good in the world. There's just this like you are just this being of light and enthusiasm and joy. And I just like seeing you then and seeing you now and all the time that's been in between really, really touches me the way that you show up for everyone in the world. So Thanks, thank you Andy. Yeah. I feel the same about you. I was thinking about this conversation today and how we've had so many conversations like this going yeah. back through the years of just like 
diving into philosophy and current events and our personal values and just like weaving all of that um, and helping like discover ourselves through each other, you know? Yeah. Yes. And I love that. Like we have the insight. It's like, let's just do that and press record this time. <laughs> yeah. And there's something in what you said about, about conversation as um, a place for discovering ourselves. You know, I think a lot of times I'll speak for myself. There's a, a way in which um, I feel pressure to present a certain way or to have a certain answer, to have the right answer. And I'm sure as an educator, you can relate to that. I'm sure you encounter lots of teachers and students who have kind of imbibed and internalized the idea that there's always a right answer that we're supposed to give. But there's something really beautiful about letting understanding emerge through process. And conversation is just one of the most wonderful processes we can engage in. And uh, I get the sense that that sits at the center of what you do in all of the different contexts that you work in is like inviting people into discovery processes. Is that right? Most definitely. And in fact, as you were saying this, I was thinking about how I've become so conscious over the years of of sharing that I don't have the answers and that like, that's not what this is about. Mm. It's about figuring things out together and being vulnerable and sharing where you are and what you need. And then together thinking about what supports you need to make that happen. Mm. 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 It feels um, as sort of beautiful and simple as that feels in this moment. I'm, I'm tuning into there's, there's almost a radical counterculture like that, that almost feels really radical in a way when we, when we think about our culture and the ways in which we so often feel the pressure to armor up and not be vulnerable and, and not admit that we're hurting or that we don't know the way forward, but rather to like, just sort of sit in that not knowing together and take the armor off. I don't know. There's just, it just seems it's, it's a little bit sad to me that that's radical, but it feels really radical. And I wonder how, you know, you work in so many, you're, you're a professor of education, you train educators, you teach yourself, you've worked with students of many ages, of many, many different abilities. Like you're just doing, you've worked with lots of people in lots of contexts. How do you, how, how do you extend that invitation, particularly when it seems like people are a little scared of receiving it? How do you make the space where people can set down that armor and, and begin to really engage in the process? I think there's a few specific things that I've done and like cultivated over the years. The first being an invitation mm. and inviting people into the work. And so it's not like a top-down feeling or I'm going to like teach you how to do something. It's more like come explore this with me and I might have some tools that work for you and we might discover some tools together, but there is no right way. And whatever we figure out, try it for a few weeks and then we'll reflect and revisit mm. it. And nothing is a, an absolute or a forever. Mm. Things are always changing and evolving. Mm. And I think another part of that is that I'm often not someone's supervisor. And mm. so people are relating to me as a peer, even if I'm a coach or a consultant or whatever my like official role is, the idea that I'm a fellow educator who's been there with them and who isn't, doesn't have any power of, over their, their job makes a big difference in terms of people opening up and, and feeling mm. vulnerable or being able to take a risk and try something new. 
And I think especially right now with COVID and the pandemic, there's like two school, unfortunately it's binary, it's two schools of thought. One is pretend like everything's okay and just jump right back in. Mm. The other is it's okay to sit in the feelings and let's make space for that. And that's in some ways more important than getting to academics right now Mm. for teachers and for students. Mm. Um, And I'm sort of in that more towards that other camp. Yes, I think it's important to have school resume and have there be structures and routines and things feel a little bit normal. But I think first and foremost, we need to make space and and have structures, have restorative circles, mm. have more times for and ways for thinking about feelings. What color do you feel? What animal do you feel like? Um, what are oh, some adjectives funny. that are like running through you right now? And it's okay if they all don't match with each other. You know, you can feel frustrated and joyful and pensive all at the same time. And yes. I think that's, if anything good is coming out of this, being able to spend more space in the the relationships and the community and the how we're supporting each other before getting to the math lesson of the day mm. is really mm. is an important thing. Mm. And if we keep this afterwards, this could be revolutionary or radical in terms of what how we think about education wow. um, that never happened with the internet and should have. This idea that like now that information is just accessible, teachers have a different role. And we sort of never made that shift across national education that teachers are community leaders and guides and facilitators and conversation holders instead of imparters of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm struck. There's so much in there. But one thing that I'm kind of imagining myself in that scenario is some of those invitations you described around like, what color are you feeling right now? It, you know, I have a two and a half year old, so she's not quite there developmentally, but I already see how imaginative she is. And and I can imagine when she's three or four or five, like that, that question would be so easy for, for her to answer. Like there's just an, there's a really obvious natural way in which that question, a, a childlike approach to the world would be like, oh yeah, I'm feeling the color orange right now. Right. But as adults, we like, there's, there's a lot of pressure to see childlike thing to to say that oh that's childlike and as a result that's not how i'm supposed to engage with the world but i can imagine that if i'm i'm a if i'm a teacher who's able to connect to that play and connect to that space of feeling and and exploration that that way of being that energy is going to impact my students and how they relate to me and and whether or not they trust me like there's sort of this wonderful unexpected bonus in that you you're naturally going to create a more safe and trusting and engaging classroom if you're willing as a teacher to to go to those places that our culture often says this is not a place an, an adult is supposed to go this is this is not a place that's that's professional or or appropriate and i just wonder like i wonder how you see that happening when when teachers start to not certainly right now but i know you've been doing this work for years before the pandemic when teachers start to embrace some of the invitations that you offer around connecting to purpose and inner experience and space and emotion, what starts to happen in their classrooms that they might not have anticipated? I mean, it's a huge shift. A lot of new teachers, and I often work with new teachers or adults who are new to teaching, Mm. 
the ideas like lesson plans and how do I focus and what is my next lesson going to be and how do I make how do I assess what I've just taught to make sure that it's really sunk in and you know and I say okay put that to the side for a second what color are you feeling <laughs> and then all of a sudden I have a sense of my of the room I have a sense of the audience and this idea of putting the community first and putting the community building first it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy like having your basic needs met, you can't be your best self unless you feel secure mm. and safe. And mm. I think that's true of classroom communities. As a teacher, you need to make your students feel secure and safe and connected to each other so that they can take learning risks and so they can make a mistake in, you know, on a writing worksheet. Um, And so, I mean, over the summer, I was working with brand new Italian teachers for Teach for Italy, mm. and I introduced them to the concept of a culture plan, which is thinking about all the different ways that you build community and being really intentional about the conversations you're having, the invitations you're making, how much you want to co-create that process or routine with the students, such as the community agreements, which I prefer to call instead of the rules, um, <laughs> yeah. or the communication norms. How are we using Zoom? What do we want our nonverbal communication to be so that we're all participating, even if just one person is speaking? And as soon as that process starts to happen, and I always do this with the teachers, whatever I do, whatever I think teachers should do with kids, I model with the teachers. Mm. It's like very, very mm. parallel and transparent. Mm. And afterwards... They all have this like the moment of the light bulb going off where they say, wait a minute, teaching is about building community and then it's about the learning. But first and like mostly it's about building community. What is the container that you're creating to hold all of these kids? How are you starting the day in a meaningful way? How are you ending with a meaningful reflection that feels like it's closing out all of the space and time that you've shared together? Mm. And that's, that is the work of being a teacher, right? That like anyone can read a lesson script or learn how to write a lesson plan or a curriculum unit or a map. But the, the being in touch and knowing your students and holding that space for them, that's mm. the essence. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love the moment of insight. You know, we've inherited this, uh, this sort of legacy system of education that sort of setting aside the, the, whether or not it was quote unquote good, it worked in an industrial society, right? Like it did, it did, the system did what it was designed to do, which was to produce certain skill sets and knowledge that worked in certain contexts. It came, I think that whole and system. Childcare. Yeah. And to provide childcare. Child labor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And we're so, so we, far from that. We're so far from that. And yet, and yet we can't, it, collectively, we can't seem to, uh, it, it seems really hard to imagine collectively. Like I know that, I know that right now if I could like just let you chop it up and you would, you would be like, here's what the future of education should look like. And I want, maybe we'll do that in a minute, but I want to like tune into, <laughs> I want to like tune into why is that so hard collectively? Why do these legacy systems when sort of, looked at objectively don't match reality like that just simply isn't a reality anymore the way that school is built and yet here we are with a system that keeps trying to fit a certain way what what have you noticed in all of all of you these years of doing this work around where where resistance is and what people are afraid of or 
Yeah, what are you coming up with as you think about why it's so hard to ship? I got two words for you. Okay. White supremacy. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so let's let's dig into that. Say more about I mean, those two this words. is about holding systems of power and, and keeping the most vulnerable down and not letting <sighs> our most vulnerable populations get what they need um, so that it feels like a more equitable playing field, right? <sighs> I mean, even right now, like kids across the country with disabilities have not even been considered in states' educational plans for remote learning. There's mm. like a sentence in a 30-page document about kids mm. who need more support. Mm. Um, mm. The documents are also mostly across the states, assuming that kids are going to have internet connection mm. um, or that the kids don't live in shelters and have transient housing. And it has to be a systemic shift of thinking about our most vulnerable populations mm. and, mm. and prov- making them the priority. Like the mm. kids who have resources mostly white, middle or upper middle class kids are already going to get what they need. They don't need all of the financial or people resources and support. We're, we're continuing inequitable systems. Yeah. I've been really, uh, I just finished reading a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. And, and it's about the ways that the what, what, what we're calling white supremacy, which actually has a historical legacy that goes back and through slavery times, back and through the Middle Ages, like it has really deep, long-standing roots, shows up on a lot of levels. And one level, the, the level that Resma focuses on is like the level of the body, literally the physical body, the way that our our fear response, our fight, flight, or freeze response has internalized to the point where we can't even consciously think about it unless we really slow down and look at it has internalized certain behaviors and beliefs and actions that keep perpetuating this system. And so, so like one place he goes to is the place of healing. He says like, how can we help? How can we recognize that that system hurts all of us, all of us, including including white people like me and you, how it hurts us in certain ways. And how can we create space to heal from that so that some new possibility emerges? Otherwise, we're just going to keep leaning into these same patterns that you just described, which show up in policy and show up in decision-making and show up in the absence, like, oh, yeah, we need to make a line about, uh, about students with different, you know, with, with different abilities. Okay, good. There's the line. Check. We check the box, right? How do we, like, how how does healing show up for you? Cause I get the sense that you, I know you don't maybe talk about your work as healing, but I get the sense that a lot of what you do is about helping people heal. I wonder how that's resonating with you as, as I share that. You know, I've been afraid to dive into the diversity, equity, inclusion space with teachers as like mm. a white person. Mm. Um, and over the past few years coming out as non-binary and dealing with gender microaggressions, mm. I've felt more, um, I mean, qualified is not the right word, but qualified to like hold that space for Mm -hmm. other teachers. Um, And so I've started doing diversity, equity, inclusion workshops for teachers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 80% of the teachers in America are white women. And so a lot of that is unpacking what that looks like when, you know, I don't remember the number, but it's more than half of the kids in in the, the U.S. are not white. Right. And so if you are a white person of power and you have a whole host of kids who are not white, what does that look like? How are you examining who you are and where you've 
come from and the biases that you hold that you're not even aware of so that you can be more culturally sustaining to your class, to your Mm -hmm. students, and to also be able to recognize when your biases are happening. Um, Mm -hmm. I do this activity with teachers. It's called the identity iceberg. Mm -hmm. And it's just a picture of an iceberg with a line that shows what's above water and underwater. And I say, take a few minutes and write down the parts of yourself that people see when they walk down the street. I mean, Mm. this was more effective when people weren't wearing masks, but what do people see when they see you on the street? That's like your, that's what's above the water. And what's all the things that people wouldn't know by looking at you unless they got to know you. And that's what's below the surface. And I've done this with, I don't know, 700 teachers Mm. over the last few years. And it's very rare that white teachers will write white in the above the, the water level. There's like not even awareness that walking down the street, you're going to be perceived as a white person. Mm-hmm. And I've never had a person of color not have that be one of the first things they write as this is how people perceive me. Mm-hmm. And it's a very awakening moment to think that I'm not even aware of my whiteness. Mm-hmm. And that's like such a, that's such a base level. It's not even diving in, but mm-hmm. just the people see me as white. And that comes with a whole host of ideas and assumptions and stereotypes and expectations of how I'm going to treat other people as a white person. So how do you help teachers who like, is it simply then a matter of pointing out that pattern and, and engaging them in an open way about the implications of it? How do you, because there's a, there's a quality of defense that I've experienced and encountered where it's like, no, I'm not racist. No, I don't see color. No, like there's sort of all of these things we want to say, which I understand. They're like, really, I would love for us to live in a world where we all really inhabit, where we recognize that we made race up, like we literally made it up. And that we've helped people heal from and repair from all the repercussions of that invention. And we can see humanity in each other. Like I want that world. And we can't, we can't just have that world by saying, I'm not racist. I don't see color. I don't like it. Just it's, there's no shortcut to that world. So I wonder how you, once that pattern emerges, how do you engage people in the conversation? How do you engage white teachers in that space? So before the workshop, I, ask everyone to take implicit bias tests on Harvard site and I ask everyone to take two of the ones they think they are absolutely don't have biases for. Um, and so that's typically when teachers get defensive and we have to really unpack that implicit biases are not conscious. This is what has been fed to you and what you have like sublimated across your life from society and culture, marketing and the political system that the point is that you are not in control of these thoughts, that mm. they are like embedded in you, that you, ha- you have not had control over consuming them. They've just mm. been the water of the fish, of you being the fish that you swim in. Mm-hmm. It's not like an awareness. Mm. And that now you can be aware of them. And then we start talking about microaggressions and people often are surprised to learn that they've used many, many, many microaggressions, not realizing it or that it's part of their friend group or part of their family group to like make comments about different cultures or people or abilities or races that they hadn't even considered could be 
felt as oppressive mm-hmm. or, or, or hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from there, we go into, okay, if you're in a classroom as a teacher and you hear a kid make a microaggression, now that you can identify what a microaggression is, how do you respond? Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of role play practicing mm-hmm. how you can call kids in and say, hey, you know what you just said? It feels really weird to me. Does it feel weird to anyone else? Like, and let's start talking about the feelings that come up when you hear something in a safe, safer container, mm. in a space where it's okay to make mistakes and you can then like try new language. Mm. And mm. we also talk about if you're feeling the microaggression towards you from a student, how do you respond? You know, like, mm. hey, what you said is, is rubbing me the wrong way. Like, I need a minute to process this. Can we talk about this in a few minutes? Um, mm. Or, you know, I, I just found your words hurtful can I tell you what's coming up for me? And just practicing and getting the muscle memory, getting the used to having those that language be accessible so that you're then inviting students into it and then they'll use it themselves. And the last part is to talk about what it means to be an upstander and to like from day one, when you're setting up classrooms, have practices of what it means to be an upstander. How can kids support each other if they feel like, someone is being verbally mean to each other, or if someone is intentionally excluding others often, how do you step in? And at what different age levels are there like appropriate responses? Mm. Oh, Kate, I really, uh, I so much I'm psyched about in what you just shared because of how, one, how hope, how much hope it gives me that if, if more teachers are learning how to do this with young people, then by the time young people become old enough to be teachers, they'll have a level of skillfulness that many of us never had the chance to develop when we were growing up. And that's beautiful. And not just the teachers as adults. So many yeah. adults don't have these skills. Yes, just like as adults, right? That more adults, that 20 years from now or 10 years from now, there will be more adults who are more skillful in being upstanders and, and being able to name name moments that are uncomfortable and that are aggressive without without devolving into uh into polarized conflict like there's a way in which i hear you teaching people how to have conflict that makes everyone better as opposed to how to have conflict that forces everyone to choose a side and that's really fucking cool but i'm also tuning into is there's a way in which um i've noticed that often when when we get defensive, people in general, but particularly in the context of being like a white person who gets defensive about race, there's a there's a way in which we very quickly shut down. And this has been given a name, white fragility, right? And it's sort of like, I think part of that shutdown is the fact that not only do is that does does it feel like there's an attack and we've never really had to handle that attack. To your point, we've never we've always just been able to not notice that we're white. That's not, that doesn't show up on the tip of the iceberg in your activity, as you said. But also, even once we once we were like, okay, I'm, I can hear that, there's a sense of not knowing what to do about it. And it sounds to me like you're, you're actually helping teachers both engage with their identity on levels they might not have before, but also then to, to, to step back into the teacher chair and be like, okay, I'm, I'm, going, I'm now empowered to be a more skillful educator right here, right now even if it's messy, even if I'm not perfect, I don't have to just feel guilty or feel helpless now that this dynamic has been named. I can actually step back in and, and do my job and do it better than I was able to do it before because now more kids feel safe around me and more kids are able to learn. And I think that like 
that move back towards skillfulness and agency is something we really need right now. Like we really need more adults in every setting to be able to step back in and, and show up in service rather than kind of be like, Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. I'm, I'm white. And now I feel guilty about being white and blah, right. Like there's that like sort of in between space that I think a lot of white people end up in. And it sounds like you're really helping adults lean into that, which is really cool. The other, like, I think important aspects of this that go beyond just taking a diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop and examining your own biases. Um, when teachers say like, well, what else can I do? Uh, the first is to start a white affinity group in your school mm. um, for other teachers or with your friends or with your family. And out of Philly, Bar We, Building Anti-Racist White Educators, mm. is an incredible group that just offers free discussion guides for white affinity teacher groups. Mm. And so they've like set up systems for you to then continue this work as an educator with other educators that doesn't cost anything. That is once a month. It's not a, it's not a time commitment, even though you're still doing this work every day. It's a, it's feels routine and it's accessible as a teacher who already has a million meetings um, to continue learning and and examining who you are and and what that means for your students. Yeah. And, and so you and I both like, I'm, I'm asking a question that I know, you know, the answer to, and that I do too, but it feels really important. There's a, when, when people hear about the idea of a white affinity group or a white caucus group, there's, there's a kind of resistance that says, but wait, I thought we were trying to integrate things. I thought we were trying to make a world where we could all talk to each other. You're saying I should just go over and just talk to other white people about this stuff. Why, why would I do that? And I'd love to hear your take on why that's so important. Um, because I just, it's just is really important. I want to make sure we underline it. So when historically white people have been the oppressors, it's up to white people to fix it and you can't fix it in isolation. You have to fix it as a community and in thinking about systems and changing systems. And it's really hard to examine yourself in any context in a silo, right? Like how we started this about how like you discover yourself through conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having time and space to say like, look, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know how I show up as a white person. I don't know how my biases are affecting my students. And it's really hard to be vulnerable about it. So let's create a container to work through this because we want to be better educators. All Mm. educators want to be their best and want to learn and grow. No one wants Mm. to stay stagnant. Mm. And if you can say, hey, this is something I need to work on. I I have racist beliefs that I don't even know how to access or counteract. Um, or be aware of, let's dive into this together and here's a framework for it, a lot of growth can happen. Mm. Mm. And then you can go back to a larger community that feels integrated because you're doing work. Right. And you're not asking anyone else to help you, anyone else who's already been carrying the burden of being in this world where white supremacy is is a just a part of the collective DNA to help you do that work. Sort of like you can get up to speed. You can get to a place of awareness and competence at a pace that works for you without uh, having to ask people of color to, to help you like educate you or catch you up to speed or any of that stuff. And that's really powerful. Yeah. I'm really and glad. We- there's t- 
tons of amazing content from uh, educators of color that you can consume to help you on this journey without needing someone to sit and explain something to you. Um, I think the abolitionist teaching network from Dr. Bettina Love Mm. is doing the most incredible work right now. Um, Mm. And having panel discussions with educators of color across all sectors, explaining exactly what is wrong and what needs to be changed and, and mindset shifts uh, that can help spur conversations among white people of how to, how to be better allies and how to be better teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's the the amazing thing is uh, there's so many amazing things here, but one is that we live at this moment where in fact, if you're willing to make the move to start paying attention to these questions of, of racial justice and equity, it's just like you just have to turn half a step to the left and suddenly there's a whole world of people who have been working on these questions for decades and decades and decades and have really developed incredibly sophisticated and inclusive approaches that can help you level up as a teacher or just as an adult in the world who's trying to be a force for good. So I'm really glad you, you underlined that. Can you say the name of the, the organization one more time? It's the Abolitionist Teaching Network. Oh, lovely. And they have an incredible, that was one of the first webinars they did, and it's on YouTube, and it's called Repurposing Our Pedagogies, Abolitionist Teaching. Mm. And um, I'd love to share with you one piece from it that I think is really valuable and has been a huge shift for me in this, which comes from Carla Shalabi. She's a pre-K teacher coach. And she says, every time I'm working with three and four-year-olds and their teachers, there's this idea that if you like make a mistake or you break a rule, you get thrown out. You get Mm. kicked out of the classroom, you get suspended, you get expelled, whatever it is. And that this is part of white supremacy, that some people are throwaway people. Mm. This is what she calls it. And that even three-year-olds have internalized that some people should be thrown away and some people shouldn't. (sighs) And if we're going to change this, we need to remember that we're a community and we have to always keep people in the community. And if someone makes a mistake or someone breaks a rule or someone just does something that's different from you because of their culture or their upbringing or their language or whatever it is, the answer isn't to throw someone away. The answer is to say, oh, you're a person in my community. Let's figure this out. Let's talk about it. This was my experience. What was your experience? And to always be mindful that everyone has internalized this idea that like, when you make a mistake or when you're different, you get thrown away. And it's okay that some people are throwaway people. And even three-year-olds know this. And so how do we as a society work in all of our aspects, even outside of education, to always be bringing people back into the community and holding the community above whatever the like mistake was or whatever the perceived difference was. Uh, I love that. I really fucking love that. Yeah. How do we create spaces where, where all of us can hold the collective community and not throw anyone out, even as we together get better at being a community? right? Like that. Yeah. I love that. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's made a, it's just, it, it's really changed a lot of my thinking and I feel like it's an important concept that we should all be discussing because it does happen so young and it's so <sighs> just embedded. Like we just think, Oh, 
someone, you know, broke a law, they should go to jail. Someone killed someone else, they should be killed. And that's not living in community or recognizing everyone's humanity. Yeah. I'm tuning in to the, the damage that does to the people who manage to not get thrown away too. Like, like there's a, there's a sort of quality that we then take on, even if we have, even if we look a certain way and have certain privileges or whatever of like, I really got to make sure I don't get thrown away. And, and in the process, one way I can do that is to make, is to kind of increase the intensity, whether consciously or not, that some other people might get thrown away. So it's like, it just naturally that, that sort of belief is in its nature, a divisive belief that, that is producing fear and harm for everyone. Right? Like if we're always, if some part of us is always on guard against the possibility that we might get thrown away, you know, and to, and we're going to experience that to varying degrees and intensity, depending on where we are in the collective but if some part of us is always on guard around that and then is also maybe also secretly seeking to make sure other people get thrown out so that we don't like that is a really damaging way to move through the world. And I just love that. Why I don't love it sucks that that gets onboarded at age three, but I love that the, the, the alternative is we could really just build that muscle way sooner of like, Oh, okay. Something happens. We don't have to exclude this person. We can all, grow as a result of whatever just happened and we can make it we can improve from that i think that's beautiful yeah to just change the instinct yeah just change the instinct right and 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 it makes me wonder like the word instinct is a provocative word because it sort of implies that we're born with it and i don't know if we should have that debate right now but like i'd like to offer the possibility that like our many of what we think of as our instincts are in fact inherited beliefs and behaviors that are not a that are actually aren't a given that there have been and are even to this day cultures of people who have the kind of instinct you're describing the instinct to lean in and embrace and learn from and repair and heal like from actually from most of human history aside from the past 10,000 years or so we have yeah. there are cultures who have used those kinds of uh, ways of being together. So this is not new territory. In fact, it's very ancient territory. Yeah. I want to, uh, if you're comfortable, I want to shift and talk a bit about, you, you mentioned very briefly your your journey into coming out as non-binary. And it feels like all the themes we're talking about in the context of helping teachers and students were themes that you had to live really viscerally in your body, in your journey. And if you're comfortable in whatever way you're comfortable, I'd love to hear how you, how you navigated that, how you are navigating that, what it, what it means to step into who you are, even when it potentially comes at, at risk or cost, because it is not something that that's embraced by mainstream culture. You know, I've always been like this. I've always been me. Yeah. And it's only with having language for it and a name for it mm. to describe and have other people understand. I've always understood. Mm. I've always been very clear about who I am. 
um, and like struggled to explain who I am to other people or have other people see me the way that I want to be seen. And it feels, I mean, it feels both silly and obvious that having a name for it has made all the difference Mm. or having other people to point to in media, in culture, now in politics, um, so that other people have a reference for what that means. Mm. Um, Mm. I was having a conversation the other day with a friend um, who's a queer man, a cis man, and he was saying that he spent his whole childhood avoiding wearing dark blue because it signified masculinity. And he just really didn't want to be seen that way because that wasn't how he felt inside. And Mm. I was like, oh my goodness, I spent my whole life trying to wear dark blue because I wanted to be seen as more masculine. And I had never thought about this before. I had thought about shopping in boys' departments and in clothing stores and like, you know, binding my chest and doing all of these things to like look more masculine. But it had never occurred to me that my like, propulsion towards the color dark blue was so subconsciously and conditioned to want to be perceived as more masculine in a way that I didn't have a word for. Oh gosh. That's such a, that's such a potent, like quote unquote, simple, but potent example of the ways in which we seem to know things about what, what sort of, what things mean without even being aware of it. Um, there's this thinker who, by the way, if you haven't heard of, you'd love, his name's Bio Akamalofe. And he talks about, talks about a lot of the things we're talking about. I mean, if you go down his rabbit hole, I think you'll love it. But he, I heard in an interview with him, he, he just, he, he says there's some emerging evidence and research that says that there, are, there, when we talk about collective knowledge or collective beliefs, that there are certain ways we can actually test for that. And they're really simple things like researchers interviewed something like a thousand people and just ask them what color is a circle? Like really kind of almost nonsensical questions. And what they discovered is that, is that for instance, that nonsensical question, what color is a circle? Most people, and I don't know the exact number, I'd have to look it up and maybe we can include that in the show notes, but most people said red. And so they don't know why that is, but they started to get to a theory. Well, maybe it's because uh, we all see stop signs and even though they're not actually circles, they have a, they're circular-like, and they have a color associated with them. So we've just imbibed this random belief about what a circle, what color is a circle. And I'm hearing that and what you're describing. Like, there's a, what color is masculinity? Oh, it's dark blue. <laughs> like, you knew that. Your friend knew that, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be a really cool experiment to just ask 100 people what color is masculinity and how many say some shade of blue, which is funny. part because- of... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. go for it. No, no, just one other thought. I learned recently that there was a period in time, maybe back in, in the 30s or 40s, where, where pink was actually a quote-unquote masculine color and blue is a quote-unquote feminine. And for some reason, that has flip-flopped. So there's also this quality of kind of, there's a world in which we could live in where you ask someone the question, what color is masculine? And they'd say, oh, bright pink. Right. Like it's sort of like there's a kind of arbitrariness to the attachment that we still are really good at like picking up on. Even if no one ever once tells us that that masculine is dark blue, you somehow just learn it. And that's remarkable to me. So I'm curious, you're about to say. I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) This idea that like pink is for girls and blue is for boys was is a marketing ploy. 
Um, It was a way to create more products to sell. Uh, It wasn't really like there was no thought about the long-term repercussions of how assigning a color to a gender could then develop into a stereotype about that gender and what that means. Um, There's this amazing activity that I used to do with my kindergartners that comes from Nina Citram, a really good uh, friend and colleague. And you show them advertisements from like Target and Toys R Us and just like things that are marketed towards kids, clothing, toys. And you just ask them, what do you notice? And you just sort of like spend chunks of time letting Mm. them just like say all the things they notice. Mm. And then you talk about like, well, is that true? Right? Do all girls want to be hairdressers? If in all of the the toy magazines, those are the images you're seeing, Mm. do all girls love hot pink? And the kids, of course, say no. And you say, great, now that you know that sometimes you're going to see things that aren't true, you can decide, do I believe this is true or not? Mm. And until you have that conversation, those images in the world just become thought of as inherently true. But as soon as you start observing, what is it about? What do you notice? What do you see? What are the themes? Then kids can be more critical in the world and not just assume all of those ideologies and stereotypes and sort of absorb them. Yeah. It's a very, very powerful activity. Yeah. So, so it makes me wonder if there's an, uh, an analog or maybe it's just literally the same activity. Like it sort of seems like for, for kids who are now adults who never were given the gift of doing an activity like that, how could we start to give them that gift to adults too, to sort of notice those things that we have taken on and assumed to be true for what they really are, which are inventions, either conscious marketing inventions or, or unconscious collective inventions about what we think is true. Like how can we interrupt or disrupt that pattern for adults? Do you think? I mean, I think the question, what do you notice is like maybe the most powerful question in the world. It's the question that I like want teachers to have at the forefront of anything they see like before you make a judgment, before you try to interpret it, before you think about how you're going to react, what do you notice? And Mm. I remember pre-COVID sitting on the New York City subways and I would practice this. I would look at marketing campaigns that spread all across the subway and I would think, what do I notice? Oh, all of these people are white. Oh, Mm. what do I notice? Um, All of these people are playing stereotypical gender roles. Mm. What do I notice? These are all straight couples in the advertisements. Mm. Um, And to think about like, what does that say about the company? What does that say about the company's marketing team? What does that say about their awareness of where these advertisements are going and who their audience is? Mm -hmm. And to instead of just interpret that like, I don't know, all bed linen companies are for straight white people to think uh, that maybe not everyone is is having this question. Like, what do I notice? Or what do I Mm -hmm. need to be noticing? Mm -hmm. So there's sort of just a way of being, there's kind of a curiosity, a noticing, an attention to detail that, that, that gives us a kind of power that most of us don't tap into. Yeah. There's an incredible tool, an observation tool that I always teach teachers, but it's part of like every teacher training program in the country that asks you to observe kids and just write everything that happens without mm. interpretation. What do they say? What are they doing? And not like, oh, that kid is frustrated, but that kid is jumping up and down and yelling and their face is turning red. 
right. like very, very objective observations. And teachers are always think this is such a pointless activity. I'm not, this is taking a waste of time. I can't write this fast, blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards, when they go back and reread it, they go, oh my goodness, I noticed so many more things than if I had just been like looking around and not really taking in everything that's in front of me. I wouldn't have seen that kid crying in the corner or I wouldn't have seen those two two kids like playing with each other's hair. Um, And all the things that come up with really knowing your kids and observing the community. And it's a very powerful tool that I still do sometimes, you know, just to just to notice what's happening around me. Uh, I love it. There's this, um, you may have even heard of him, a guy named Rob Walker who wrote a book called The Art of Noticing. It's essentially like a collection of about a hundred and some odd, 108 or something like that, some odd exercises, little, just little games he essentially invented and then is sharing in a book that are literally about building our capacity to notice detail. And I love you, this. yeah, you gotta, you gotta check it out. It's just more in a general context of like being a person who moves to the world, which again is like harder to do, especially for those of us who live in in densely populated cities. But in whatever way you're able, the invitation from Rob is simply to like walk down the street and one exercise is something like look up, (laughs) lift your head and look up. And what do you notice? What's the color of the roof? What's on top of the roofs? Uh, Are there people up in the windows? Are there jets flying by? Are there clouds in the sky? Like all the kind of things that you can then become more attuned to what's happening in your environment as opposed to simply moving through it as quickly and targeted as possible, which we're all trained to do. It's sort of like you can just do the same thing you do every day, go for a walk. But instead of just assuming your walk is about getting from point A to point B, reframe your walk as an adventure to discover something you've never, what's one thing you've never seen before on a walk that you do every day right? That's like another activity he offers. And he, and he has, like, he goes down to some pretty deep ones, but it feels like it's at the heart of what you're describing, that if we all become better noticers or more skillful noticers, we also get the added bonus of becoming better disruptors of patterns of behavior and belief that are oppressive or damaging to each other. And I think it's also about healing. Yeah. When you're noticing what's happening around you, you're not stuck in your own thought patterns and you're seeing yourself as part of something bigger. And yeah. that's also a way to disrupt white supremacy. It's not yeah. about the individual. It's about who you are in relation to the space and people around you. Mm. I wonder, as you sit kind of where you sit now, as someone who's been both doing this work for, for many years and who's also like now trying to do it in the midst of a pandemic and also in the midst of at least a partial global awakening around the need for systemic reform and racial justice. What's, what, what is the sort of growing edge or, or leading edge in education right now? What is the place where if you could say to teachers or legislators or anyone else who has influence around what's happening in the classroom, like where would you, what invitation would you extend to people who are thinking about education right now? To ask the most vulnerable populations what they need and put their priorities first. (sighs) That's kind of always what it comes down to for me. It's about the kids with disabilities who are being left out of the conversation the kids with all different cultural backgrounds from a white cultural background 
that are being expected to fold into and assimilate white into white culture. Uh, it's about language and celebrating, like really celebrating everyone's languages, and not having this idea that you have to abandon it and speak English in order to succeed. Mm. 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 Holding all of who people are and asking them what they need, not making decisions for people, specifically white people making decisions for not able-bodied people or not people who are white or not people who have a binary gender, but asking groups of people that you are not part of what they need and how you can help. Mm. Mm. Love it. I want to like, I, I want to now have another hour long conversation about what that looks like, like what we could ask and what responses we might get and all that. But I think that's a wonderful place to land for today. And I'm really inspired by you and what you do in the world. And, and I'm optimistic that if you're out there helping educators educate the way that you do, the people, the young people who are learning from those educators are going to grow up with more skillfulness and awareness and capacity to notice and disrupt and be of service to others than, than we have in our generation right now. And that's pretty awesome. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. If people want to, before we wrap up, I'll make sure to include it on the show notes and stuff. But if people listening want to learn more about your work or connect to what you're doing in the world, where should they find you? KateFriedman.co. All right. Lovely. KateFriedman.co. You heard it here. Master educator, warrior for social justice, all the good stuff that, Kate, you're doing in the world is an inspiration. And, and uh, I can't wait to share this with, with people. Thanks, Andy. You bet. See you soon. Big kisses. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.